Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, folks. Back in Wake Forest, North Carolina tonight, Raleigh area, with uh, Quinn. Quinn, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. We're back on the front porch again. It's kind of nice, masked up, just kind of socially distanced. Thought we would record an episode, kind of get to see each other, get kind of get out of the house for a little bit. Huh. It'd be a nice thing to do. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about um, wig history and decadence and what these two concepts are and how they're different, why they're important, and uh, and kind of what they're explaining about the world. Huh. So I, I guess just to kick it off, you know, what's Wig history? I think that's a good good place to start. Well, I think there's a defensible and an indefensible version. And the, defensi- the defensible version starts with the observation that a lot of our objective metrics are getting better. Few babies starve to death. Then did starve to death before. And there's not a whole lot of doubt that babies starving to death is bad. There's not much controversy about that. Most people agree with that. And so at least if you're focusing on the metrics which are getting better, which do seem like important things, uh, you can argue that things seem to be getting better on the whole. I think the indefensible version is kind of... We're actually... We just touched on Hegel. Yeah. And Hegel believed... um, that there was sort of underlying cosmic progress for reasons that were essentially mystical. That um, the world was moving toward pure and pure manifestations of the absolute idea. Interesting. Um, and that is very, I think that's very, very difficult to argue. And I think very few people explicitly believe that. But I think a lot of people... um on some level, do believe that there is a cosmic law that things are getting better, and that everything is getting better, so they don't have the sense that, oh, I should look at this statistic and see if it's actually improving. Interesting. So Hegel had this idea that (laughs) we're just improving toward this, like, good thing, immaterial good thing in the future. Pure thought, thinking about pure thought, is how uh, Russell summarizes Hegel's absolute. But I think... Hegel is the archetypal example. He's the one I use when I'm talking to my mom, for instance, of somebody who's communicating badly because if they were communicating well, uh, they would be less convincing. Yes. There's a lot of cases of that, yeah. especially in academia. Yeah. Especially in, in German philosophy. Yeah. Shall we say? It, it yeah. seems like to be a bit of a common theme. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. So on its face, we history, you know, Things yeah. seem to be getting better from like a utilitarian perspective. Yeah. Less starving, less people in extreme poverty. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, there seems to be all these problems. Yes. And so I, I, I guess against Whig history, there's the uh, the decadence kind of argument. Yes. So that's uh, kind of Ross Douthat coined the term. Yeah. Oh, I didn't okay. know that. Yeah, he did actually. Uh, so decadence, he, he coined the term. Can you describe kind of decadence, what it is, and maybe why it's important? I think 
more the opposite view that history is sloping downward. Got that, it. That uh, we are losing useful social technology. Um, and I have some ideas for plausible mechanisms why that might be happening. Got it. Um, and what's an example of social technology, just for the listeners? Well, I would say representative democracy is that's a thing we know how to do, and it has certain advantages. Uh, for one thing, it seems to um, stabilize succession, so you don't have to go to war each time the government Which turns is nice. Over. Yeah. Um, I think manners probably are also social technology. Sometimes they're obsolete or vestigial, but a lot of the times they serve a purpose. Got um, it. Would this? Be, I've got an example yeah, I, I want to throw out. I, like I want to see what you think about it. And we may have talked about it before, so excuse me if we have. But um, they do these this study to to yeah. try and measure social trust and drop wallets yeah. off in different societies in yeah. different big cities across the world. Yeah. And you see, and there's like a hundred dollars in the wallet. You know, I, I don't know the, yeah. I can't remember the exact, um, you know, exact criteria. But they drop them off, you know, they'll drop like 100 wallets off in each city. And they see, and there's a phone number in there and there's a card contact. Yeah. And they see how many of the wallets get returned yeah. and how many of the wallets get returned with cash. Yeah. So perhaps like a really good society would be one where the wallet always gets returned with the yeah. cash. Uh, one of the really interesting findings, this is just a side note, is that uh, one of the worst places in the world to get your wallet back at all or with cash in it was actually the People's Republic of China. Yeah. On your face, you think it would be like yeah. some really poor place in you know yeah. the developing world, like in Latin America yes. or perhaps Africa or the Indian subcontinent. But no, it was actually in in China, which is yes. which is interesting. Even in cities like Shanghai. Yeah, I don't. I'm not good at geography. Is that uh, very developed or quite developed? I would say it looks like New York City. I was wondering. Because I'm betting one of the things that correlates with returning the wallet yeah. is reputational systems and social systems. Interesting. I think people get used to um, – I think it's not just conscious calculation. If you live in an environment where your reputation is an asset and people know you and you're not really atomized, then doing the right thing is a strategy that pays off again and again and again because people can see that you're a good person and so they cooperate with you and – Oh, interesting. So maybe like if you're in a small town, you're more likely to cooperate yeah. because the, there's more likely to be a repeated game yeah. than if it's just like one off you're in a big city. Yeah, you could see returning the wallet as trying to decide between the money and the reputational capital. And you right. can't get as much reputational capital out of it in a place where people don't know who you are. Interesting. I don't think people are actually that cynical consciously. Right. right. I think that... But there could be some unconscious yeah. process that, that works in that way, too. Real, that's really interesting. Um, so that's a good example of social technology. Yeah. Maybe do you return your shopping cart or not? That yeah. feels like a good yeah. good metric. Uh, or even even norms around, like, lining up for things. Yes. Seems to be... Um, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. That was a complete tangent. No. So social technology seems to be getting worse, going the wrong direction. Yeah. At least some of it is. Um, I want to be as skeptical of a universal decadence view as I would be of a universal progress view. But, um, yeah, we are losing some stuff. And it's potentially... And it's valuable stuff. I kind of... I have some baggage about this. I feel yeah. like 90% of the people I talk to about this are either 
committed to the view that things are getting worse. And they brush off the infant mortality stuff, which right. is significant. Yes. Or they're committed to the fact that things are getting better, and they brush off social trust or self-determination or this sense that lots of people obviously have very deeply felt that things are getting worse. And I think both of those are significant enough that part of me is always kind of t trying to anticipate which way you're going and to be ready to say, but wait, there are dead babies, or but wait, there is an enemy and suicide. And Yeah. Oh. That, that's, a, that's a really good point. I often wonder, what I've, what I've come to think is that... Um, and I'm not super confident about this, but it, it's something like things are getting better. Like there's less yeah. people in poverty and that, that trend is continuing. Um, but I think at the same time um, in the, so the quote unquote developed world, yeah. things are either getting better more slowly or they're only getting better at the top and they're getting worse or staying the same yeah. in the middle and bottom. If that makes sense. Cost disease and stagnation. Yeah. Definitely. Huh. Our friend uh, Scott Alexander. Is, we should mention cost disease. Yes, I, I think that's it's really good. And then mention, you know, Scott came back yesterday. He on did. Stay recording, Scott that, Alexander. I had the thought that it was going to put me more in the wig history camp because yeah. things are obviously getting better because Scott came back. That's exactly, exactly. There, it's settled. We're done. Why are we? Yeah. We don't need to talk anymore. We we fixed it. No, <laughs> solved it all. That, so uh, so cost disease. Yeah. Can you describe what cost disease is? Uh, I think the original idea um, is an economist named Baumol. Or Baumol yeah, I'm not yeah, sure, I'm not how, sure how, how you pronounce it, but that's, yeah, that's uh, the thing. Who was uh, trying to explain why wages generally rose when we made technological improvements. Like, um, why should improvements in factory technology raise the wages of people who play violin professionally? Right. Um, and his solution was that you have to pay them not to leave to become a factory worker. Got it. And so the uh, and so even though they're not producing more than they were before, or not necessarily producing more than they were before, um, their bargaining position has changed. And on its face, this seems like maybe a good thing, right. that productivity enhancements get shared throughout the economy. Got it. I mean, if we imagine the world without that kind of effect, um, some jobs would just not be worth doing. You'd still be making subsistence-level wages at them. Because right, right. They, <laughs> yeah. And I guess your point about the – so let's say we want to go see someone yeah. play the violin at a concert. Can't yeah. do that right now, but say we wanted to. Or um, actually, a couple miles from here, I saw Lang Lang play. Yeah, really famous Chinese piano player at May Mandy Concert Hall, and his wages—but not his wages. It's hard for him to be more like get efficiency gains. Yeah, um, because he can only play so many concerts a night. You know, there, there, yeah. there, there's a fixed, um, and once you've so. Um, but but you can make gains in other areas. And yeah. so, so maybe there's some areas where it's like uh, you know a doctor can only see X amount of people a day, and you know you can make you know you can make these small improvements, but there are absolute productivity gains. Like where, once you reach them, it's impossible yes. to and up level that. Indirect improvements. If the people the doc if the doctor can see ten people a day, but 
those 10 people have shifted from being people who are able to produce 10 widgets an hour to people who are able to produce 150 widgets an hour. Right. And he saves one life of those 10 people. Probably not that much, but um, right. for, then the doctor has indirectly caused there to be way more widgets than he would have beforehand, even though he's still seeing the same number of people. Definitely. So we've got so we've got cost disease here. Yes. Which and um, I think the main point about cost disease is that essential goods have gotten yes more. So we this could look is, at inflation chart and like we've got you know uh, TVs are getting cheaper yes. and a lot of consumer goods, but then essential goods are getting more expensive. Yes. This is Scott Alexander's point. He wrote a very 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 good essay about, it. and it looks like very essential things you need to live, like uh, housing. It seems like not food, but housing and medical care and education that you need for your job and right. is getting more expensive. And I I maybe tell me if you think I'm misinterpreting this, but I've read the essay two or three times and I think no one really knows why. He throws around like four or five theories, but none of them are actually strong enough to explain the effect. That, that that's the sense I get, and I almost wonder. I know Tabel Rock wrote a book on this, which I have not read yet. Which I would, and I think he may have reviewed the reviewed Scott. may have reviewed the book, um, but it, it seems to me the more and yeah, it, it's it's almost impossible to tell why, and it almost doesn't matter why. Just more than anything else, it matters that it's happening, and we have yeah. to find some way to fix it, right? Yeah. Um, but so the essential goods you, you just talked about. Where they're rising faster than inflation, it's like a so housing prices that could be due to like I, I'm just let's let's get through each one maybe throw out a few reasons yeah. why it might be um, the cost may be growing yeah. faster than inflation. It's like housing uh, zoning regulations yes. you can't build new housing kind of nimby yes. not in my backyard um, and then there's healthcare it's unclear what's going on in yes. healthcare uh, and then education. Um, that's the other area. Yes. Maybe it's subsidies have some effect, but there's a lot of... Yeah. I think... I also read Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yeah. He writes about this stuff, and he says that um, subsidizing a good can only ever have beneficial effects if it causes more of the good to be produced. And if it doesn't, it will raise the price. And so screw Got over it. all the people who aren't getting the subsidy. Got it. And so he says... I think he uses education as an example. Um, he says, in the early 20th century, we built many more universities. We subsidized the universities, and that caused there to be many more than there had been. And in the late 20th, or maybe the early 21st century, recently, we tried that again, and it caused university prices to rise, but it didn't cause more to be built. And so something has changed that keeps us from building more universities and that keeps that subsidy from causing it to be more affordable and to actually contribute to making it less affordable. Right. That, that's really interesting. It does seem like there hasn't been a prestigious university built since 1900. Yeah. Like, I mean, like Stanford feels like the last one. Yeah. I don't know. Like even Duke, like, you know, like the, you know, James B. Duke gave all the money to Trinity College and. Yeah. I don't know. There seems like to be some cap. I don't know. It, yes. The stagnation is strong in this one. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's stronger if you take into account population. Like, the argument that made me um 
that made this dawn on me was about uh, writers. So oh, yeah? sort of different. But yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare is great. Yeah. Macbeth is great. Shakespeare has a reputation for being great, so probably there would be enough inertia that people would keep saying he was great even if he wasn't great. But yeah. I've read him and he's great. Um, our population is, I don't know how many times that of Elizabethan England, but it's a lot. A lot more. There ought to be four or five people as good as Shakespeare. Right. And as far as I can tell, there aren't. And that seems very surprising, and it seems like a fairly strong argument in favor of the decadence thesis, that with the increased population, we should be seeing more people doing great things for just about any category of great things that hasn't become obsolete. That makes sense. Because I guess for any activity, we've got like, you know... Yeah, it, exactly. There should be more, you know, if you have a normal distribution of people... Yeah. There are going to be, and you increase the number of people. Yes. There's going to be more people that, you know, are off on these tail ends. Yes. But that's very bizarre, right? It's yeah. very bizarre that it's not happening. It is. I mean, our go-to example of a great writer is from Elizabethan England. That's very uh, odd. Yeah, it is. And so, I guess, you know, and, and these questions are, let's just take the, the you know, the Shakespeare case, because I think it's yeah. a good case. And this may be a useless exercise because I think this is like, you know, why is overdetermined. But, you know, what do you think went wrong? Like, why do you think we don't have, let's just, even in art, like, why do you think there's just, why is it bereft of of these great works? Currently? Well, I think there's a thesis that I run into sometimes on the internet that I don't know if I understand it well enough to articulate it. Yeah. But it seems to suggests that most of the institutions we have dedicated toward nurturing, toward directing resources toward artists, right. are mostly neglecting people with the talent to produce beautiful things or insightful things or truthful things oh, yeah? in order to play signaling games. So if you compare modern art to older art, it's kind of... I'm sure some of the modern art is very nice, but with a lot of it, it's hard to see the point of it. And right. I don't have this sense when I... It seems like just about every time I run across a really beautiful painting on the internet, right. and I Google the artist, he's from like 100 years ago. Right. I just discovered Wyndham Lewis, who I gather wrote very controversial stuff that I'm not very interested in reading. But all of his paintings are gorgeous. Yeah. They're just gorgeous. And... I feel like I could have predicted before I looked up who this guy was that, you know, he wasn't going to be, oh, he lives in San Francisco now. Yeah. He's a historical figure. He's definitely a historical figure. Which is very bizarre. Yeah. It's very bizarre to think we've gotten worse off at, at doing that. It is. Um, so I think the culture has something to do with it. I think... um. I have a pet theory that institutionalization has something to do with it. I guess maybe it's not a pet theory now because I've seen some other people saying stuff like that. But I picked up, I was reading Bertrand Russell because I like Bertrand Russell right. talking about the Royal Society. Yeah. And it's basically this group of friends who, you know, 
they fart around, they play games, and one right. of the game is who can make the best predictions. And oh, boom, you have science. Right. And it seems like a lot of that early science, it's done by people who love it. It's not incentivized, and it's not institutionalized, so you don't have Goodhart's Law type issues or Purnell's right. Law where the people who are motivated by power get control of the bureaucracy because there isn't bureaucracy. That's a great point. And I wonder to what extent – so talked to Don Braven yesterday who, – yeah. recently. Not yesterday. Recently. Um, and he is – he's 85-year-old. Um, and he just he had his book Scientific Freedom republished yeah. by Stripe Press, and he had this has this idea that essentially what you need to do is you need to find people that can make you know breakthroughs in basic research, yeah, and you just give them money and you just let leave them yes. be, and yeah. I, I wonder to what extent have we just like that that doesn't happen in in, in all these different fields, right? Yeah. You just don't get like you know a small chunk of money you can just go out and just like be creative and, and do things and like, yes. you know, it, it's, it's counterintuitive to me because I feel like a lot of the problems we have, like a lot of problems with coordination problems now, yes. like, right. So like the vaccine, like, and so we're really bad at coordination, but it seems like maybe what's gone wrong is that we've got, we've gotten good at, well, we think coordination is more important than it is in some areas and then like don't worry about it in other areas so we want accountability and like science and creative pursuits i think we often overestimate our ability to do it and so we try to do it and it ends up worse than not trying to do it but it's because we're not i think a lot of this i don't want to be reductive yeah but i think a huge part of this is goal specification we can't specify what exactly we want so we specify a proxy and we think the proxy is what we want, and then we get much more capable. Our civilization gets much more power, and we yeah. pour that power into the proxy, and it becomes very unlike what we actually want. Interesting. So bureaucracies select for um, people who are good at playing politics, right. and it's really hard to stop them from doing that. Right. But you need bureaucracy to coordinate a lot of different people. Definitely. And so – I think partly we're just we're overestimating how much adding bureaucracy actually helps and how careful you have to be in setting it out and how right. fragile it is when you get one that actually functions. I think that's I think that's a good point. It's like super underrated. Like, you know, we talked this V, like there's yeah. constant entropy in bureaucracies yes. and they like you said, I think it it's like there's a real art to setting them up and keeping them accountable. Yeah. It's very difficult to do and people perhaps underrate how difficult it is. Yeah. I, I, you reminded me about the artist, just a side note. You know, I see, uh, you know, the proliferation of MFA programs. Yeah. Um, you know, like Tisch School of the Arts, you know, they're everywhere now. Um, and I often wonder, it's like, you know, if you really, like, want to become an artist, shouldn't you do, like, kind of what Thoreau did and you just go to a cabin in the woods and you just write a book? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe that's yeah. Maybe that's the real answer in things just have gotten weird right like yeah. i don't know like you don't need someone to teach you how to do it and in fact the act of going to get taught is perhaps counter counterproductive yeah well it at least the way we're teaching it now i think our teaching paradigms are 
Well, I think we've fallen victim to this. It's very hard to test for genuine knowledge. It's easy to test for regurgitation. The best processes for getting people good at regurgitating stuff destroy the capacity for genuine knowledge. They blank out understanding. Our educational systems have kind of gone whole hawk on this. That's so, a good point. They, so they, to elaborate on that, they teach you to copy things yes. and not create new things. But it's it's very, like... Can you even teach people to create new things? Like, that's a real question. Yes. I, I don't know. I have a... There's a pattern that I recognize, um, which is we assume that something is easy and we know how to do it. Yeah. And then when some of us realize that it's not and we don't, we start saying it's impossible. And my Eric Yudkowsky would say, well, have you tried for five minutes? Right. Actually tried for five minutes to think <laughs> of a way to do this? Right. Yeah. So this, this reminds me, I'm reading this great book, and I'll have to do a podcast on this. It's uh, it's called Now It Can Be Told. It's yeah. by General Groves, who huh. ran the Manhattan Project, yeah. which, fun side note, by the way, is yeah. it was actually going to be called the Knoxville Project, yeah. but uh, for political reasons, it got changed to Manhattan. Yeah. I'm a big East Tennessee fan. That's yeah. why yeah. I mentioned that. Uh, but it's incredible how he's describing in the beginning how he's talking to scientists and he's completely non-technical and yeah. he would like tell you that. And he's like, well, you know, we didn't really know that we could do it, yeah. but we, we thought, you know, we probably could do it and we, we would figure out a way to get it done. And uh, we're just going to set up all the infrastructure we know we think we need now. Yeah. You know, he's talking about setting up heavy water plants, which he actually yeah. ended up not needing, yeah. but it's like just in case, you know, so mm. they thought through everything. It seems like people avoid doing that process of actually thinking through yes. like is this feasible is this something people would want yes. i don't know all these different areas i think so yeah it's interesting i think well it is interesting yeah my mom's from tennessee oh really I where actually know where gotcha uh, except no i don't actually know where interesting yeah um Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, what's gone wrong is difficult, but I think, like we've just talked about, it, it it's difficult to ascertain exactly what's going wrong. But I, I do wonder, you know, what are the paths? So we've talked about decadence. We've talked yeah. about Whig history. I think both of us perhaps have a sense that, uh, you know, the numbers are getting better, but yeah. there's also real stagnation that's yes. going on. I think um, I'm a little... I hear he attributed to Luke Keep, who's a blogger whose work I find fascinating, but I never feel like I understand it. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> it's not like Hegel, is it? No. <laughs> okay, good. No. That's important. But, which is that um, the division is between legible and illegible, that we're good at improving legible metrics, that we're oh, bad at improving illegible metrics. That's really good. That the illegible metrics get sacrificed when we improve the legible metrics. Got it. That's really interesting. So maybe we've gotten really good at just like, well, that's not exactly, that's not true. We're also, we've also gotten bad at doing legible things like vaccine distribution. Yes. But, but you know, in some areas of our society, we're good at like legible things. Yes. Think, um, we are. The vaccine stuff is disturbing. I mean, I feel like it represents a progression in some sense or a visible progression. So maybe um, 
maybe it's a lacking indicator of things that should have worried us 10 years ago. Right. That's a good point. Just the, our, our general inability to do just about anything. Yeah. Just continues to pace. And and with, with few ways out of it, it seems like. Yeah. Which is... Partly, I think the world is getting... I've thought that, and it's a judgment call, but I yeah. do think the world is getting stranger. I think it's getting less like the ancestral environment. And so our default heuristics are malfunctioning more and more badly. Interesting. Um, which I think is one of the sources of this. Do you think... in? In what sense? Do you think it's like we're more atomized, we're more... Yeah, with more population. More people. And in some sense, um, more connected almost. Um, it used to be your peer group were the people who lived near you, and they had the same information diet. So right. it's partly less that we're atomized and more that we have different and incompatible sets of connections. That's a good point. While being stuck together. Yeah. We're in different media bubbles. Right. And, um, I don't know. It's complicated. I think um, we're trying to do big things that involve coordinating lots of people. Right. And I think we have a set of intuitions about that that, honestly, a lot of things sort of fell into place. And I don't know if this is... I'm not, I'm not a professional. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those areas where people will say to you in an accusatory voice, you're not a professional. <laughs> but um, if you read about the uh, ancestral environment, yeah. you have little groups of people right. under Dunbar's number yep. who have known each other all their lives, right. who are going to know each other all their lives, and so many things fall into place. Reputation systems are everything. Revenge makes sense because people will see that you took revenge and so they won't harm you. Right. Um, that's a sensible investment, you know? And coordination tech makes sense. We have this intuition that um, if we bring the tribe together and all agree that X is a problem, then X will get solved. Which makes sense when everyone is watching each other all the time. Right, exactly. And we have the sense that, well, by golly, if that doesn't work, we will assign someone to do X, and that will fix it. Right. And actually, what that means in the modern world is giving someone the title of being the X solver. Right. And then trying to specify the goal well enough that they solve that and not proxy. And that's really, really hard, but we don't realize that it's hard. We expect it to be automatic. That's great. But so, like, the... The separation of, and this is on a, moving up a different yeah. level, but the separation of responsibility and, uh, I guess, like, responsibility and, like, this, the benefit of, like, having a title. What's, yeah. how, how would you put this? Like, so, like, I, I'm thinking about, in the, in the case of, um, this, this is a good case. I think everyone knows about this. The, you know, the Trump administration, they decided, you know, we don't want to, um, we don't want the responsibility of dealing with COVID. So we're going to just hand this response over to the States. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and it's like, so they, they want the status of having taken care of COVID yes. without the actual responsibility of taking care of it. And then we end up, Yeah. I mean, there's so many failures down the chain, like, you know, but yeah. just this specific example. Yeah. So they play on the States. That's right. The States have coordination problems. Right. And, 
They're bureaucracies. Yep. You're going to get sick of hearing me say that, but I do think it's key. Yeah, it's very important. And so it doesn't work very well. Um, I'm not totally sure where you're going with this, to be honest. Just, I, I think the, the separation of uh, the problems that happen when you get status and, um, what's the word? You can get the status without the responsibility. Yes. Uh, That's what I'm trying to say. There's a blog post by, um, I think she blogs under Elizabeth, which is not a very Googleable name, but it's called (laughs) um, Power Buys You Distance from the Crime. Oh, interesting. The idea is that one of the things people use status and power for is insulation from responsibility. And so you actually get a negative correlation between people's ability to be responsible for stuff and their ability to make bad stuff happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I wonder what happens when that effect spreads out kind of across our society, right? I I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we end up where we are now. Yeah. It's a whole tangle of tricky problems. Yes. And even enumerating them is like a, a tall task. Yep. Um, Oh, where was I? Where's my brain going? That's a great question. I want to talk a little bit about. Um, so we've talked about decadence. We've talked about Whig history, um, and perhaps some some pathways out of decadence per <laughs> se. I know. So Ross Douthat ends his book, and it's like until we get you know the warp drive or whatever, we're in trouble. Um, <laughs> which seems like a uh, kind of a cop out. You know, specifically, I want to let's look at art again. I, I think that's that's a great, great place to to be. You know, are we just doomed to, you know, Marvel and uh, Star Wars? You know, every year. Yes. You know, until Which we are... all, until civilization collapses. I don't know. Star Wars is getting worse. I think. On a yes. civilizational scale, anyway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and like, where's the new... You know, the problem doesn't seem to me that we don't have enough Star Wars is that we don't have enough um, Star Wars in the sense yes. that we don't have new media that is actually new. Yes. It's just like rehashing old things until... And the rehashings are getting worse. It doesn't uh, fit as neatly into Marvel, but... I love the Batman comic books. Yeah. And I don't love any of the movies. And oh, I really? None of the Dark Knight stuff? Nah, uh, I really like their portrayal of the Joker. But some, right. There are some structural elements that are missing there. Um, personally, I love derivative works. I love the kind of creativity that comes from remixing something that's already existent. Gotcha. But the new ones feel more and more stale. Um I don't want to. You could do a whole podcast just about this, but a big part of the problem with the Dark Knight stuff is that they allow the viewer to see Batman's decision to dress up like a giant flying animal and punch muggers as a rational response to crime. (laughs) And one of the key things that all the really good Batman comics have in common is the acknowledgement on some level that it isn't, that you need something... um, that's what makes him a psychologically interesting character. And it's what makes them powerful as art in a way that I don't think a mainstream superhero movie 
has been. They don't feel safe. They feel, um, they don't feel sterilized. They feel right on the border of being actual horror. Interesting. And in the context of that dynamic, his relationship with the Joker is interesting. Um, Union is the word I keep coming down to because that's the level of analysis that I think makes sense for it. And so I do kind of want to... The way this ties back is that um, the comic books I loved were derivative works. They were based on the character who was created in the 1930s. Yeah. But they were good derivative works. And I don't think the current stuff is on anything like the same level. Um, Interesting. I don't know. It's something... Just gets worn out. Yeah. After a while. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, so perhaps you can ride the tailwinds for a while, but yeah. eventually, you know. Also, um, I feel like the status of stuff changed. Uh, the comic books from the 30s were made to be disposable. They were oh, yeah. fun for children. And then a bunch of people, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, came yeah. along in the 80s and said, okay, let's do serious art based on this. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. And now we are making blockbuster movies, and they are yeah. not serious art, and they are not great. They're okay. Uh, yeah. If you want to enjoy them, you can enjoy them. I don't want to knock right, people right. for enjoying them. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's almost like the. Uh, but it feels like the, like that transition matters. Now you can't do right. anything too scary with the character because, he's a billion dollar property. A right. Property, right. So perhaps you get constrained because you have to serve everyone. Yeah. Your target audience is broader. Right. The work gets less specific. And then you... Less things you can do. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I wonder, are, are people as artists now reaching too broadly... Like, are they yeah. trained to reach too broadly and they, they don't focus enough on their own super bizarre and interesting, uh, th- the things they're interested in? Yeah. The internet would do that. And the feedback cycles, you get likes very quickly for doing stuff that appeals to most people. Interesting. Fewer people working in the woods. Right. Hmm. Perhaps that feeds into it. Yeah. Um. So perhaps we can run back to to Whig history for a a bit. Um, It does seem like there has been a a great, uh, there's been quite the recognition that uh, it's somewhat run out, particularly in the last, uh, you know, five years, I would say. Like, I I, I think you could, you know, there's like the end of history, you know, Fukuyama, you know. Who in Fukuyama claims like that's not exactly what I said, but you know, and probably isn't exactly what he said. Uh, but it does seem like things have really um, devolved, and there's more recognition that there are real problems going on. Yeah. Um, and I I don't know. Like I don't think there are many serious people that acknowledge that everything's going super in all facets. Yep. But I could be wrong about that. I don't know. No, I don't think you're wrong about that. I mean, I can't think of any. And and. And this does remind me, like, you know, you've got a, there's a lot of anti, and on that same front, a line with that is that there's a lot of anti, 
you know, liberal democracy, not anti, but like, you know, my favorite is like, you know, it's palladium. It's like, what's next after liberalism? Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I keep going back and forth on this, but I'm, I'm fair. fair I, I'm at the end of the day, I'm like kind of a McCloskey, Deidre McCloskey yeah. liberal. And, and I feel like everyone who's making critiques, all the smart people that make critiques yeah. have not spent enough time looking at the alternatives. Yeah. I think perhaps. we're in the same boat there. I haven't read McCloskey. I know by reputation. Oh, she's great. Um, I do hear great things. Um, a lot of it feels like noticing that the complicated machine is producing some bad outcomes yeah. and jumping pretty quickly to smashing it with a hammer. Right. Which leads us to simpler outcomes that I think are mostly worse. Yeah. You almost get a little bit of a sense of Nietzsche talks about he was talking about value systems, but he distinguishes, I think, between regressing to simpler sets of values and creating more complicated sets of values based on your existing set of values. And that feels relevant, at least as an analogy. That um after liberalism, well, we could try feudalism again. That, we know that's a very um, high entropy system. There's right. a lot of attraction toward there. Yeah. Or we could try something weird and new and yeah. complicated that we haven't thought of yet. Right. And one of those sounds about a billion times more interesting than the other. Right. But the real challenge seems to be, you know, coming up with what that is. Yeah. You know, it has to be something that's achievable, that is... You know, it, it's it seems so complex, and it's just not something I've seen yes. in, in in the cultural yeah. milieu. Like everyone's talking about this stuff, so I don't know. Like you know, everyone's exploring. You know, what comes next? You know, what do we replace it with? But I think, you know, it's good to look and always. You know, it's always good to look. But I, I guess my my point would be, it's probably good to be careful about blowing things up until you know yes. you have something better, perhaps. Yes very big fan of that sentiment yeah. as David Friedman puts it uh, revolution is the hell of it right. I think he's riffing on revolution for the hell of it which was <laughs> that's awesome oh. that's well put but I do think these critiques they are strong and they of you know, you know how things are progressing and how they're not progressing Yes. and I think they're becoming almost more true and it, that is disturbing to me because it is somewhat of a forcing function for the revolution, like you said, yes. right? Like, uh, as things get generally worse, uh, alternatives seem to look better and better, even if they're not yes. well thought through. And, and I don't think this is like a rational process where we all sit yes. around. No. You, you know, like we don't sit around the round table and all like, you know, come to like this conclusion together about what we should do. Yes. It's like super messy and and, yes. and bad. And, and it's like the, uh, you sent me the essay by Bertrand Russell about, what was it titled? Uh, I was reading it last night. Things that... Ideas that have helped mankind. And ideas that have hurt mankind. Yeah. And uh, in the in the ideas that have hurt mankind, uh, there was one, one line which I highlighted on my Kindle, which I don't have with me. But it was something like, you know, you, you wouldn't believe how, you know, just a few short years ago, you know, people in Portugal, they, um, they were, he was describing this incident where people were really mad 
that they had strangled someone before they burned them at yes. stake. It was, yeah. it was during the Portuguese in- yes. Inquisition, I believe. Yeah. And, and because they didn't get to see them writhe in agony yes. as they passed. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, you know, we've replaced some of that with, like, video games, right, which is really good. Yes. But it is. <laughs> really positive development. But, like, that part, there's parts of human nature which are just, like, very complex and disturbing and dark. And, like, yes. we have to, everything has to be modeled with that in mind. Yes. It does. Um, Martin Geary. I started reading his book. Oh, yeah? Revolt of the Public. Oh, how is it? It was okay. Um, I only started it. I think um, I have the sense that I get the point gotcha. already. But um, several times I've had that sense about a book and then I've read it and I've been like, wow, I didn't get the point. Right. But as I understand the point, the idea is... The internet has connected people in a way that unlocks a lot of populist energy because a lot of people can coordinate now. Coordination is much cheaper. But the lowest, the thing that unites the most people is negation. It's tear it down. Building it up, people have different conflicting visions of it. And so we're seeing a lot of energy put toward purely negative ideas. Right. We see hate mobs. We don't see love mobs. We yep. don't see mobs coming together to build stuff because that requires more complex coordination. Right. Twitter enables us to... Twitter enables a shift in our ability to smash things. That's because a good point. It makes it, because coordination is easier around destruction. Well, and even if... You can even hear that, like, you know, listening to the inauguration and just... And it was a, you know, it was a unity speech. Yeah. But even then... The applause lines in a political speech are always the ones that where you're like scoring points. Yeah. Against some like political enemy. Yeah. I don't know. This, this, yeah. is, this is important to remember. Like you're right. Like it's you can't sell unity or coming together to build something up. Like the, I think the only way two large groups of people. I think you can sell it to very small groups of people, and that's how you can actually move the needle. Yeah. But I think that's important right. to keep in mind. You can only. It, it's the only thing that sells. Is, to large groups of people coordinating is taking things apart. Yes. Um, Benjamin Hoffman talks about scapegoat rituals. Oh, yeah? How a large group of people might coordinate um, to extract resources from an individual. Oh, if interesting. An individual stuck out as a target, but they have no reason to coordinate to bestow resources upon an individual. Right. And so we see certain... We see certain equilibria where anything that makes you stick out is bad. And Scott Alexander's, um, in the post he put out, like, yesterday, I think, he talks about the uh, pressure not to blog if you're working as a psychiatrist or a cop. And um, it's difficult to rationalize that. That's a really good good point. And and what, again, why is always really difficult. But perhaps, do you have any thoughts around why it seems like things have gotten so, like, what's the word? There, there's immense pressure to conform yes. in, like, all walks of life, it almost seems like. I think I do have some thoughts on, hold on, I saved it. Oh, perfect. Let me pull out the quote. Awesome. Um, Scott writes, um talking about the pressure not to blog. Yeah. I got emails that were like that, only it was grad students. 
apparently, if you have a blog about your field, that can make it harder to get or keep a job in academia. <laughs> Let's pause and if you write about your intellectual subject, <laughs> it's harder to get or keep a job in the portion of our society that's dedicated toward disseminating knowledge about that intellectual subject. I'm not sure what we think we're gaining by ensuring the smartest and best educated people around aren't able to talk openly about the fields they're experts in, but I hope it's worth it. And I wrote a thread about possible explanations. Um, Benjamin Hoffman says, In zero-sum games, majoritarian decision rules, such as democracy, create an asymmetry. It's much easier to expropriate from a minority than from a majority, or easier to transfer wealth to a majority than to a minority. Why would the majority vote for something they don't all benefit from? A simple benefit of this, a simple variant of this is the survivor game, in which a single player is voted off the island at a time. Since there's comparatively little advantage to being singled out for good, players will tend to want to avoid revealing information about themselves or their allies. Loudly voicing consensus opinion in ways that don't specify the implications for any person is fine because it's not informative, but anything that lets people distinguish you from the others is dangerous. Oh, interesting. He's just an incredible essayist, and I feel like that, I think that's where a lot of it is coming from. Things, nonconformity makes you stick out, makes you a potential shelling point, makes you a target, um, and destructive energy is easier than creative energy. So you're mostly on the lookout for destructive energy. And this ties into, um, Zvi Mauschowitz's asymmetric justice. You can get punished, you can get blamed for unforeseen bad consequences of your actions. But you can't get rewarded for unforeseen good consequences. Right. And so there's selective pressure against doing anything. Definitely. And you, you see this all the time in, in uh, the FDA's class example, I would say. Yeah. You know, you, you don't get – and like the vaccine rollout, right? So you, yeah. do, you, don't, you don't get any points for the people you save. You only get points for the 1 in 100,000 people that – negative points – for the 100,000 people who get Guillain-Barre yes. from the vaccine. So they, of course, they take their time. They let, you know, just, just 200,000 yes. people, Quinn, die from COVID. <laughs> well, they they make sure that, you know, no one's going to get Guillain-Barre from the vaccine. Yeah. But it leads to, like, just so much outcomes that are much worse. Do you think there's anything with our legal system that, that plays into this? It does seem to be, like doing things it's like the trolley problem right so if you threw the switch in the trolley problem yes you would be held li- li- liable yes um whereas if you let more people die and you didn't do anything you know i think our legal away. system makes it significantly worse it's a hard problem yeah i don't love our legal system <laughs> i have a grudge against it because it doesn't live up to my ideals and when i was a child i thought it did and learning that was unpleasant yeah um it's always bad when your heroes are villains (laughs) but yeah it makes it easier i think there are tweaks we could do but the underlying problem is very difficult we can't um Punishing people for inaction tends not to go well. Right. Um, 
and there is a fear, and I think it's a legitimate fear. I think it's kind of an unthinking fear sometimes, yeah. but I think if you think about it, you'll be scared of it after you think about it, too. Yeah. That um, if we say, okay, you can kill people if you have to to save people, yeah. then you've opened the door to all kinds of um, rationalizations. And humans are very good at coming up with rationalizations. And you've damaged common knowledge that people won't kill you for the greater good. That's a good point. So, so perhaps it's something like, well, what could start happening is, you know, Quinn, you know, we're operating on you for some unknown reason, yeah. and uh, we're like, wow, we realize, man, Will's over here, and yeah. three of Will's friends are here, and man, if we take all of Quinn's organs out, we yes. can save all of them. That'd be yes. great. And that's four people. Yes, we need. I mean. That's the surgeon variant on the trolley problem. Right. And one of the, I think, traditional responses to it is that society needs us to be able to trust that that's not going to happen. That we lose more from, just in a purely utilitarian sense, you lose more from people being worried about that happening right. and never getting surgery in case it right. happens than you exactly. gain from. Which I think is true, but... It, um. So I don't see how to... I haven't tried for five minutes to literally write laws that would let you throw the switch in the trolley problem but wouldn't um, let you take someone's organs out. But I don't trust people to actually enforce those laws. Right, right. I think I've—I don't think I have mentioned on here. Um, I usually say that uh, there's this line about the law and its majestic equality punishes rich people and poor people equally for sleeping under bridges. Right. But realistically, I don't know. I think pra I think that was Proudhon, and he was French, and it was a long time ago. But in the society I live in, no, it doesn't. Um, yeah. The laws, even if they're facially very unequal, are yeah. never enforced equally. Right. Sometimes the division isn't rich and poor, but there's almost always, I think that, relevant division would be high versus low status. Right. And they get selectively enforced along that axis. People straight up pretend the law says something different than the actual words say if it lets them punish people they really want to punish. Right. Which is a real problem. How do you manage that, that tribal intuition? Yeah. But it does mean that, you know, even if I could write a law that would let you throw the switch in the trolley problem but wouldn't allow for organ harvesting, I'm not sure I could trust that people would actually carry it out, even if I got the words perfect. That's a good point. I've got a question for you about utilitarianism. Yeah. So, Will McCaskill, someone asked him this thought experiment, and uh, and he uh, he's kind of, the, I guess, the the leader of the effective altruism movement or the modern um, kind of philosopher behind it. He, he wrote a book called doing good better, which I really enjoyed. Um, but he, he had this, uh, I think he was too much of a hardliner on this. And I think he's a poor salesman for EA because of it. But someone asked him, okay, so Quinn right across the street here, we've got two houses directly in front of us. Um, on the left, there's million dollars in the house. That's yours. You can go get it. And on the right, there are there's a house it's on fire there's two um let's let's say there's two people inside um say there are two children how about that to make it even more uh vivid shall we say so um we only have time to go in a house and get out the people 
or get the money from the, from the other house. Um, so you, what, what can you, you can do with the money? You can go and you can save, let's say, a thousand lives with that. Yes. So do you go in and get mo- the money, or do you go in and get the people? Yes. It is an interesting question. I think. No, almost certainly the people. Yeah. Um, yeah. In real life, the, I'm, I'm not saying that normatively. I. Uh, I practice the since I was young, the art of distinguishing what I should do from what I would do and trying right. to predict what I would do. And I'm good at predicting what I would do and what I should do is trickier. Yeah. I think part of the... Um, I don't want to pretend there aren't irrational, visceral, kind of indefensible reasons for this. Right. But there are also some possibly overlooked defensible reasons that I think filter into it. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Hoffman, who I just wrote, he wrote a post called A Drowning Child is Hard to Find. Yeah. He argued that altruists have greatly overestimated in a way that seems sort of systematic um, how cheap it is to actually save lives. Oh, because yeah. Because they want people to donate. Oh, yeah. Um, so to some extent, the million dollars, you're trusting that your society will actually use that to do right. the thing it says it will do. And I think people don't have a visceral level of trust in that, and I think they shouldn't. Um, that's a really good point. So that that's actually, that's a really good point. You know, it, that's like a, have you seen Tiger King? We yeah. We have talked about this. I have. Okay, so do you remember, he, he has a section where he starts talking about nonprofits. Yeah, and how and I think this is the most like he saw the world. Joe saw the world most clearly when he yeah. when he talks about nonprofits. He's like, you know, they're all scams. Like yeah. essentially, yeah. essentially they like, and all of them. That's the broad term, but you know, the vast majority of them are, are essentially scams that don't do what they're stated. Purpose, yes, that what they set out to do. Um, and so rationally, perhaps, <laughs> like yes. you said, if we look over there and you know the million bucks in the house, there's like, well, the odds that that actually goes to the right place yeah. are just so low. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps we're really. Are we really all just closeted utilitarians? Yeah, I don't know. I think um, more than we seem to be. I think some of our moral intuitions make sense in that context, and more of them make sense as um, Scott has a post about this. They make sense as proxies that we've come to care about for themselves, but we originally cared about for utilitarian reasons. Gotcha. Like, fairness makes a lot of sense in the context of diminishing marginal utility. Gotcha. But I think people aren't subconsciously calculating diminishing marginal utility now when they care about fairness. That makes sense. Have you read, um, there's a wonderful blog post by Jessica Taylor called Active Charity. No. I'm going to send it to you. You're going to love it. Oh, yeah? It's about, she worked in a nonprofit, I think, and oh, she writes about, um, act is the defining word. Yeah. Uh, I think it's hard to summarize the thesis of it. It's a dialogue. And, uh, but I think part of it is her claim that not only are the nonprofits scams, most people who donate to them know that they're scams oh, on really? some level. And so we're in a sort of collaborative symbiotic act where we pretend to fix these problems. Oh, interesting. And so they are aware. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if she's right, but it was a very eloquent, well-reasoned case. And I think she's more right than I thought she was before I read it. There's a guy on Twitter who told me once um, 
that we should sometimes think of communication as moving people marginally closer to the truth. Got it. Which was a big relief to me, because sometimes I say things I know are wrong, but I don't know how they're wrong, and they're the closest I can come to articulating how... Right, right. So, I, I do want... This This reminds me, you know Elephant in the Brain? Yeah. Robin Hanson book? So, you, we're talking about nonprofits, right? And so, most people give to nonprofits the signal that they care about yes. other people, right? And most people buy healthcare, you know, for their loved ones to signal they care about them. Even though, you know, if you look at, like, the Rand Health Study and, like, all these big meta-analysis, it, it turns out, you know, healthcare, there are some interventions that do things. A lot of them don't. Most of it's just signaling. We just care about each other. Yes. We want to signal we care about each other. Um, I wonder if people, like, so this, the idea behind it, supposition of the book was that people are not aware of this. Yeah. Perhaps people are more aware of this than Robin and Kevin would yes. give. <laughs> give them credit for right yes. like perhaps we know that you know like let's say Quinn you're sick you know and like yes. of course we're gonna get you the best treatment in the world you know what I mean yes. and like we know like the odds you know, it's not it probably it won't do anything right but like we want to feel better about ourselves yes and we want to believe that someone would take care of us like that yes and we know like we intuitively have that sense that it's true yes um I don't know I don't know I think one of the things that I've come to believe that I think most people don't believe, yeah. it's at least relevant here, yeah. is that there is a division. I'm modeling it as a bimodal distribution, yeah. but it might be more of a continuum. I do think it's a lumpy continuum between people who introspect, and so for them, I am not aware of this means I've looked for it and I can't find it, yeah. and people who habitually don't. They don't know why they do things. Right. They don't ask themselves why they do things. Yeah. For them, I'm unaware of it is the default state. Right. And so it's not so much that it's hidden so much as they don't look. Right. That's a good point. But maybe if you, you critically ask them yeah. and they sat down and thought about it, they'd probably come back to you and say, yes, I'm yeah. doing it because I want to signal to – and you gave them the terminology. They'd say, you know, I'm giving this nonprofit the signal that I care about the poor animals in yeah. North Carolina. I think you can find a lot of that stuff in awareness and through probing. Uh, I use imaginary counterfactuals a lot. Yeah. I use one routinely for do I believe this where I get offered up to bet on it. Right. A million dollars if I'm right. I lose a finger if I'm wrong. Losing a finger is visceral enough to make me actually care about the person. Right, right. A million dollars is visceral enough not to make me bet against whatever makes me risk losing a finger. Right. There's a bit of a heretical um, subtext to, I think, what we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes or so. It's that, um, you know, and to some extent this whole show, it's that, um, you know, like, yes, humans, human minds are valuable in all these crazy ways, like, all the time. But, you know, perhaps through critical thinking, sitting down and like figuring things out, um, we can get pretty close to the truth in, yeah. in different areas. I mean, it takes us like sitting down. I, I remember we have this like, we had this like problem um, at work, I was working on, and it seemed like insurmountable. Uh, and this has happened time and time again. But then we, we put it out in front of everybody and we explicitly like walk through what the problem is. And time and time again, we're just able to come up with like solutions to these seemingly 
impossible or, or very unlikely to be able to be solved problems. And it's just like, we are able to reason through things, but we have to focus on it and it's like expensive and it takes time. And I don't know, like expensive as in like mental energy wise. Yeah. I don't know. And unintuitive. Unintuitive. That's, That's why right. your task is, it's impossible. Have you thought about it for five minutes? Right. It's so effective because they haven't. Right, and exactly. And I think it always means that they don't care. Uh, I think yeah. it's an unintuitive that you can come up with solutions by thinking about things. Right. It's both unintuitive and sometimes it's hard to communicate to people because Definitely. they'll rehearse their solutions for their excuses for why they can't find exactly. a solution rather than actually looking. Right, right. Which is a real problem. Yeah. I mean, it's a communication problem. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's an important one for our, our society to solve to kind of move forward. Well, Quinn. Yeah. I think my legs might fall off here. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, it, it's, been, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, you uh, too. Uh, any parting shots? Anything yeah. you'd like to add? I don't think so. Okay. Should think about doing this again. Yeah, definitely. We will. We'll we'll enjoying it. We'll come up with another one and we'll, yeah. we'll get, have you back on. Appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 